Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. You feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? HelloFresh is going to get you some pre-measured ingredients, and you're going to have a mouth-watering meal with seasonal recipes. It all gets delivered to your door. Skip the trips to the grocery, man. Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking, and you can get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. That's the dream, right? shouldn't last all night. It shouldn't take forever. 25 recipes to choose from. How about the beef flautas? Those look delicious. Mm, please sign me up. All recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts. So this stuff is good for you, right? It's not like fast food or something. Go to the link in our show notes. Get 80 bucks off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. Now, on to the rock and roll bedtime stories. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. It's probably the alcohol, too. So. <laughs> Rock and roll bedtime stories. It is where we go to talk about rumor and innuendo surrounding your favorite bands and your favorite songs. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Hello. That song in our intro, that is uh, Hark the Herald. It is a song called Counterpointless. We'll put it in the show notes if you've never heard it. I still remember listening to that record circa about 2008 when it came out on repeat all the time. They had a cello player in the band, which was pretty super cool. And I love that song, and I'm glad we get to use it uh, as one of our theme songs on this show. Now, let's talk about how you can get in touch with us. We appreciate the notes. We appreciate the reviews. Uh, we are the Send sto- us a letter. <laughs> we, we- Tell us something. Put something in the post and say, Mark and Brian... Please talk about Gigi Allen's very small thingies. (laughs) Yet another day, another plug for Murdoch to try to get Gigi Allen on this show in some way, shape, or form as a discussion topic. I I just want you to express yourself by using those keys to send us a note and tell us what you'd like us to talk about because uh, you've had some really great ideas. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com if you want to get involved that way. We appreciate it. We've got other shows and other things you can check out at the website wearethestoryguys.com. We appreciate that, too. And today, let's get started and talk about disorder, or actually disorders. Uh, It's not uncommon. Rock and roll songs and lyrics from throughout the art form typically take on disorder, Uh, but they also have sometimes taken on medical disorders. I don't know if you can think of any off the top of your head. I've got a short list like King Crimson. They rocked out to 21st century schizoid man, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Punk Rockers Municipal Waste. They have a headbanger called Attention Deficit Destroyer, which I highly recommend. (laughs) There's a band called Picasso Trigger that came out of the uh, Raleigh Durham, uh, like mid 90s, where like the Arches of Loaf and and Super Chunk and all those bands were. And they were called Picasso Trigger, like after the movie. Yeah. And Kathy Poindexter was the super hot lead singer who played a trumpet badly. Uh, and they had a record that came out called Bipolar Cowboy. <laughs> I just, I, I like to think we're the only podcast in America where we're talking about Picasso Trigger this week. So I'm very excited that they got mentioned on the show. Um, I was going to, I thought I was going obscure when I was going to mention that uh, the Israeli rockers Useless ID have a tune called Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Wow. Um, what, I wonder if it's really about it. Uh, I, yeah, I think it, I think it kind of is. Uh, but you know what disorder very weirdly has a long and storied place in rock and roll. And you could say like, it's actually almost celebrated despite it being a little insensitive stuttering. 
Oh yeah, there's a lot of songs about stuttering, isn't there? Well, they, well not even about stuttering, but just where it, they feature stuttering. Like it, it, it's somehow we've just given people a pass throughout history to just yeah, stutter c- in c- songs. C- c- cold talking about my che- like it's 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 in hits. Yeah, so I was going to say what what immediately comes to mind for you? Yeah, which which my, songs? My generation by the Who. Sure. Um, and ah. Uh, there's like a joke song. How about Benny and the Jets? Oh yeah, yeah. By Bismarck changes. Catman do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. One of my favorites. One of my favorite songs, and probably my favorite song on this list. Though I love Changes and I love Benny and the Jets. My Sharona by the Knack. I'm about to say. Oh, I was about to say that. It was in my head at the same time, and I was trying to say, are are they really stuttering or just saying my 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 a whole bunch? Well, you know, there's. Or either way, it sounds like it's stuttering. There's a lot of gradations. And, you know, we could sit here and question intent. That's not really what I want to do. But I do want to define what stuttering is, right? This is not the podcast you thought you signed up for. The National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders defines stuttering as a speech disorder characterized by repetition of sounds, syllables, or words, prolongation of sounds, and interruptions in speech known as blocks. An individual who stutters exactly knows what he or she would like to say, but has trouble producing a normal flow of speech. Yep. Did you ever struggle with stuttering at all? No, but I had a really close friend that did. I had had to go to speech therapy for something different. I had S issues. I couldn't say my S's. You couldn't say your S's. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't, I, I didn't have problems with it, but I did have a friend that did, and like, you know, I mean, look at you, like you had problems with S's, like my buddy became a, a football coach and then was like a medic in Afghanistan and Iraq for like over a dozen years. Dude, my mom's favorite story is that I went into broadcasting. Like she loves to tell people that like, right. oh, he had an S problem and, and then he went into broadcasting and now he does <laughs> podcasting. Aren't yes. I a great parent? Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, I've never, I've never heard you talk about your parents in such a funny way like that. Like my, mine is this self-deprecating part of my whole life is the parent situation. Yeah, I yeah. Have, but I never heard you talk about it, the parent situation like oh, that. Oh no, they know I love them. They're probably listening. Know. They know I love them. Actually, I though, know. they really love story guys. But whatever rock and roll bedtime stories come up, they act like I don't know what I'm talking. Like what they don't know what I'm talking about. So I don't know if they listen to this or not but if they do i'm I'm happy they're here because we're going to talk about two songs that came out in fairly close proximity that partly because of the stutter that are involved are sometimes compared or at least juxtaposed and the first of those songs is one that you've already mentioned it's a song that rolling stone named the 11th greatest song of all time on its 500 greatest songs list and honestly i think if i was going to make that list i would put it top five and that song is as you have already mentioned a little song called my generation. Trying to cause a big s- s- sensation. My talking about my t- t- generation. Like, do you have a specific memory of the first time you heard my generation? Or has it just no. always been there, like rock and roll wallpaper? No, no it, it was it was a punch to the face for sure. And I and I and I and I very openly don't like the Who, right? Yeah, we haven't really talked about that. We've talked about The Who quite a bit on this show. We haven't really talked about yeah. your distaste of The Who. Uh, I think the first time that I saw the uh, 
or I heard my generation, I really, uh, I put it with the Smothers Brothers performance in my brain. I think it might have happened around, like that might have been the time that I heard it for the first time. And we've talked about that performance on this show. Yeah. Which is like the best way to hear my generation for the first time. I recommend it to anyone who can like make that their kids or their grandkids way of hearing this song for the first time because it is literally explosive. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Where and that's and that's where Pete's hearing was busted. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was from that. Yeah. yeah. Uh I mean and and it's like not just theater, like they weren't just fooling around. Like it was literally took people by surprise. And you can see this genuine WTF moment happen with the Smothers brothers themselves, with most of the members of the band. Like it's just totally insane. And we did, we did talk a lot about the who on this show already. We did a whole episode about that time. They got banned from a major hotel chain. Uh, And then we talked about mama Cass and Keith moon sharing a death connection, which is very interesting. Please go back in the back catalog. If you've not heard those. So yeah, while, in a lot of cases, we'd go into the background of a band we were going to discuss. We don't need to do that with The Who because we've done a lot of that. Um, but we should note up top that part of the reason this song rocks so hard and has been given the place in rock history that it has been given is one of the most quoted and patently rewritten lines in rock history. Yeah. yeah you want to take a stab at what that line is? It's, uh, I hope I die before I get old. Hell yeah, it is. Hell yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and if so, the, so lyrically, it's great. It's like a Bob Pollard song. It's like a Got It By Voices song. It's like two minutes and change. Yeah, 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 it, yeah, yeah. I like how the, you're saying that a Who song is like a Bob Pollard song as opposed to a Bob Pollard song being like a Who song. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate right. that. And Bob Pollard would probably be like, I wish I, I wrote Who songs. Um, I'm glad he doesn't. But it, it, to me, it, it is. And, and the guitar solo, which is... The bass yeah. guitar well, solo. Yeah, I was going to say, it's one of the first recorded rock and roll bass guitar So I don't want to get off on that. I actually left that out of my main outline because I was like, I will get really distracted as a bass player, us both having history playing bass. Uh, we'll want to talk about that bass solo. But yeah, it's got one of the first real rock and roll bass solos in history. Um, but you know, another huge part of The Who, especially at this time period, is the mod movement. Yeah. I, I Let's pause a second and talk about the mod movement. The song is so connected to that. And I, I mean, can you even tell me, like articulate what it meant or what it means to have been mod in the 60s? Yeah, you. everyone had the same haircut. They, they rode Vespas and they had rifles. Yeah. That's what I understand about the mod. You like that? That's my understanding of it. You're surprisingly close. Um, <laughs> I'll overly simplify the, by, by it here. By saying that it, it, it's a term that first shows up in 1958 in a novel called Absolute Beginners, and it's a way to describe these young British style-conscious modern jazz fans who dress yeah. in Italian fashion. And yeah. by the early 60s, this expands to identifying markers like the scooters that you mentioned, uh, like R&B music, specifically kind of American R&B music, and amphetamine pills, right? They were doing speed. Um and, ah, so you know, this was such a big part of the who. It's, I mean, let me just note that they end up writing a whole rock opera about the mods versus the, the rockers. Yeah, It's called Quadrophenia. And it is called did, Quadrophenia. Did you go to that? No, it wasn't me and you that went to the... I got really yeah. drunk at a... I hope this is not the episode my parents listened to. I got really drunk at a Quadrophenia concert, like when they were touring that, and I was getting really irritated because... There were a whole bunch of rednecks that had come in that didn't realize that it wasn't just the Who playing the greatest hits. So they were getting really mad that they were hearing all these songs that they didn't know. 
Oh, you've been to a concert like that. I saw Steve Miller once and he was like, no, I'm not playing any of those. And people booed and really? walked out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Really? And did, it was so long ago, Brian, that like I saw him the same, a, a similar summer at that same venue as a shed with like 18,000 people. And then the time he came after that, he played every hit. That's but so he got funny. booed and people walked it. Yeah, but the thing is funny about that with with Quadrophenia is like, ah, why don't you paying attention? You have no idea who these guys, what these guys do, do you? Yeah, yeah, that's so funny, man. I, it's such a weird place to get in your career where like you want to keep writing new music, but nobody wants to listen to it. I feel I always feel bad yeah. for for bands that end up there, and some end up there harder than others, right? Like some can kind of cultivate that you have to make a choice where it's like, are you just going to play the hits for years and years and years on a certain circuit? Or are you going to continue to make the music? You know, it's like people used to discuss that as like whether or not they were genuine artists or whether or not it was a money grab or whatever. And like, honestly, like I think at a certain point, if you just always are writing songs with your friends or with your band, like nobody wants to stop doing that. Right. right. I mean, we all look at it from like the business sense where we're like, well, yeah, just play those same three songs and make a bunch of money and go home. But that's not why people get into playing music, really. They don't right. really get into it to make. I mean, yes, everybody wants to be a successful musician to make a bunch of money, but it's like not really. That's not really at the core of it um, for a lot of people, and so yeah, they you know twenty or thirty years in after they've had two hits in the seventies, but they're still making new records, and people are just like, I don't want to listen to that guy. I want to listen to his two records from the seventies. It's a tough yeah. spot to be in. Or think about the guys now who are classic rock now, who no one wants to listen to their music. I, I read all. an interview. With, <laughs> I read I read an interview with with Wes Borland from Limp Biscuit, and he said, "Yeah, we're finally like after fourteen years, sixteen, however many years, we're finally you know doing the follow up record." And it was like he he gave some insane name to the record that could have been like using a golf club to have sex with a bowling ball underneath the moon with a face with an ugly face, just some weird thing. But no one, you know, it's like no one buys physical music it's like so what what are you even making a big deal about the thing just what? like don't tell anybody you know just do it yeah but i guess that you have to be a hype machine at some point and you have to know that you have to continue to be a hype machine and yeah. then people people there the people that will buy it you can, can try to convince them to tell their friends to buy it you know so you have to get out there and sell yourself well a, a really good example so of what you're talking about is chinese democracy guns and roses <laughs> like i saw that in a cd bin the other day i was digging through some stuff uh at a local record store, and I was like, man, Chinese democracy. Like, who owns this, and who wants to own this, and who owned it and then pawned it or whatever, you know what I mean, or gave it to the used you know, record store. I just like, oh, my God. And I, I was, it's such a funny artifact from pop culture to, like, pick up and touch it and look at it and be like, this exists, Chinese democracy. Do you know yeah. any song on Chinese democracy? Uh, better is great. It, it's like it, it goes, uh, it goes, now I know you better, dude. You know, that's the chorus, <laughs> but the, but the verse, the verse is all melodic. And like, I don't know any of the words for Pete's sake, but it's, but it's, it's a great song. And they were playing that song. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, they were interesting. So maybe not on the last tour, but it, with, with Slash and Duff, they had, they had played that one. Let's get back to the who real quickly um, and talk about this this mod movement. How do we get so far off topic? Um, so 
the mod movement expands to the scooters, the amphetamine pills, the R&B music. And when the style and the music start to mesh around youth in this movement, you start to hear this American R&B influence through a British filter. And my generation is a really good example of this because it has this explicit call and response form, right? So Roger sings a line and then Pete and John go talking about my generation. Right. Um, but another example of this influence is the reason we're even talking about the song. And that is the stutter. Now, Different stories about the stutter have surfaced over over the years. Some say that it was inserted as a way to insinuate what a British mod might sound like actually on those amphetamine pills. That's interesting, right? Right. Uh, There's also discussion that was... (laughs) I mean, was that really it? That's pretty funny. Uh, There was also discussion that it was a sneaky way to imply an expletive, which I think think those are kind of both a little true, right? Why don't don't you all fade away? Yeah, but there seems to... Sure, that's... Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's what that was for. There seems I never to... had any 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 doubt about that. So, did you know though that there looks to be evidence that this song originally started as a slow talking blues number without the stutter? <laughs> it's true. Wow. Well, okay. and so the song comes out in 65 in the 70s they start playing it live and they don't do slow necessarily, but they start playing a different version of this in concert, which they call the My Generation Blues. Have you ever heard this before? I'm ready. A little different. A little different. Uh, it's great. I mean, it feels like another excuse for me to talk about the time that I saw a 90s Rockers fastball play and they did the way in double time. But, you know, I do think there's like got right. to be an element of it where you're like, I'm so tired of playing my generation. We have to do it differently. But there's some speculation that this was sort of the original way that it was written. And Pete Townsend actually wrote that song. I don't know if you know that. And he recorded some demos of the song on his own. And the second and third demos featured Townsend using stuttering vocals. In his 2012 autobiography, Who Am I?, Townsend asserts, there was a stutter on my vocal on the second demo, and so I played the folks working on the record a song by John Lee Hooker called Stuttering Blues. Wow. Do you know John Lee Hooker well? Do you yeah. know that? Okay. I, I, I can't pick this song out of a crowd because there's just tons of them. Ni- 1953. This is Stuttering Blues. You, 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 you show the good to me. Now, interesting thing about John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker actually had a stutter. Now, he exaggerates wow. it. He exaggerates it in his records as almost self-parody, like one of those things where you you know make self-deprecating jokes so other people don't make them about you, right? But he actually has the stutter, which makes the fact that this is the origin place for the stutter in rock and roll as a reference point for the who, like maybe have a little bit more cred. It's still a little weird. Yeah, I didn't really know he had a stutter. It's amazing. Yeah, so that's fairly well documented, but I think when you hear it in the music, it's more severe than it actually is. Because he, I actually think he doesn't have, like, I think singing, he's relieved of it more, which 
You know, speaking of stuttering, I remember one of the first times I ever like I encountered it like in pop culture is I got, we've never talked about this on the show, but I got really into when I was like 11 or 12 into old radio comedy from the 40s, like Jack Benny and Burns and Allen and Fibber McGee and Molly. And I owned all of this stuff where I listened to all those like on repeat, like old episodes that had been saved to cassettes and CDs. And there's a bit, and I can't remember who does it. I think it's a Jack Benny bit. Though it might, Henny Youngman might be involved, but there's a there's a bit basically. Take my wife, please. Yeah, right. Um, I actually went looking for this bit and I couldn't find it. But one of them does a bit where there is a character who has a really bad stutter, but when he sings, the stutter goes away, mm-hmm. and so he keeps trying to tell someone, "Hey, hey, 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 hey," and they're like, "Sing it." And he's like, I think we're being robbed. Like, that's the joke, right? Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. (laughs) So that was like one of the first encounters I had with stuttering. Um, But, yeah, that's John Lee Hooker, Stuttering Blues, 1953. And it is the inspiration to Pete Townsend when they're in the studio. He says in this biography that he plays this for everybody and that Roger had been experimenting with stuttering on stage ever since Sonny Boy Williamson Jr. had played harmonica with them when they played the marquee and Sonny boy had used a stutter as a rhythmic device, right? When he sang, yeah. and that's kind of what it is. I think, you know, if you were to ask like, why does it stick around? I, you know, it's, it's rhythmic. Um, and so it does make more sense than, you know, just a, a random affliction that you might somehow try yeah. to incorporate into a song. Um, but, hey, would you, con- would you consider surfing bird to be a stuttering song or is that just berserk? <laughs> That song. I just want to hear you continue to do an impression of Surfing Bird. Oh my God, it's the record Surfing Bird. I can listen to Peter Griffin freak out about it all the time. Reminding you that Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by HelloFresh. Uh, you can get mouthwatering seasonal recipes and all of the pre-measured ingredients you need delivered right to your door. You can skip all those trips, baby. They've even got recipes you can do in less than 30 minutes. All recipes, they're designed and tested by professional chefs. Nutritional experts are involved. I, I don't need to tell you anything else. You just need to try it, and you can do that and get 80 bucks off in the meantime, uh, including free shipping when you go to the link in our show notes. Now, back to the show. We are headed to another song, a song that often gets compared to this song and in kind of almost falsely, but a couple more things about my generation before we leave it. Roger Daltrey has actually also commented that he had not rehearsed the song prior to recording it and was really nervous and that he couldn't hear his voice through the monitors. And so part of the reason the stutter showed up was that he was trying to fit the lyrics to the music. Um, In his memoir, Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, my story... Roger Daltrey says, I stuttered on the first line. Next take, I corrected it, but the producer popped out and said, keep it, keep it in. Pete had a long in the demo. Why don't you all just fade away? But it wasn't a stutter. Not until Kit came out and said, keep it, keep that blues stutter. So all of these stories are like sort of similar. And it very much feels like each guy in the band kind of remembers it just slightly differently. But like there's a grain of truth in all of it. Um, but here's, here's the really interesting thing. Regardless of the exact origins, a couple of things 
happened. One, it was deemed slightly offensive when it first appeared. Did you know the BBC initially refused to play it because of the stutter? Um, I didn't know because of the stutter, but I thought I thought that it was a band song. I just yeah, that's why. and that's why. So if there's anybody listening who thought I was just being way too woke at the beginning of this, bringing up the odd rock history of utilizing the stutter and asking if it was insensitive, please note the BBC asked this question in 1965. So either they were super woke or I'm just, you know, doing my adequate duty. Uh, they, but, they were woke before Revolver and Rubber Soul <laughs> woke. That's how woke That's how woke these British hipster journalists were. Uh, but the market drives and money talks, baby. Uh, this song started to get popular without the help of the BBC. Pirate Radio started playing it and sold 300,000 copies before they ever played it on the BBC. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Is that Radio Luxembourg? Is that so what it is? They eventually reversed the decision because they can't have Radio Luxembourg beating them. The second thing that is clear is that this song brought the stutter into rock and roll and became the baseline that most of the other songs we mentioned at the top become compared to. Changes by Bowie, specifically he has said, was referencing The Who, My Sharona by the Knack. They have said, specifically referencing My Generation by the who but the other song i want to spend the rest of our time on today is not one of those it's a song that got compared to the who a lot nine years later when it came out but not just because of the stutter dave marsh when he was writing in the rolling stone record guide called this song quote a direct steal from the who but an imaginative one the chords of the chorus riff are very similar to ones used in baba o'reilly and the stuttering vocal is reminiscent of my generation. And that song is You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Are you going to tell us about this song now? I got, I'm ready. I got to say, I have never heard the Who connection, like the Baba O'Reilly in that riff, or in that like those chords, but it's totally there. Dun, dun, dun. It's, this, yeah. it's the same thing. Uh, oh, yeah. that thing. Oh, yeah. wow, that is the same thing. It's the same. I've never noticed that before until I read this, and I was like, what are you talking about? That doesn't sound like Baba O'Reilly. And then I like... Put it on and went. Oh, that's that might be the exact same courting. Um, down, down, down. Out here in the streets. Okay, I know you don't love the Who, but that's you, fine. You love Bob O'Reilly though, right? Like Bob, yeah, Bob I mean, O'Reilly's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I even kind of like it when Guided by Voices plays it. But no, I it's it is a great song. What's I like it? a quick one. A quick one while he's away. Like there's a couple Who songs I really like. How about my wife? On the who's yeah. on who's next? Yeah, it's okay. Ah, come on. Okay, so tell me your relationship to Bachman Turner Overdrive. Um. Well, let's see. I, I think I worked with this really handsome man, and we we worked at a radio station that probably played that song a lot. Um, yeah, we did. And then I do remember, I do remember at some point trying to learn that song on the guitar because and still not even piecing together what it felt like it was ripped off from. Yeah. That, that Marsh said that it was, that it was ripped off from, because I was trying to figure out that, dah, 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 and I didn't, 
think about how you let it ring out and that's the yeah if you if you just let it sit it would it would be bob o'reilly so the whole bto story is pretty fascinating and it should be noted that the stutter in this song has absolutely nothing to do with the who um this is a really fun story even though it gets compared to the who by virtue of having the stutter um it it, that's it that is not the inspiration behind it we're gonna get there but just the riff (laughs) yeah just the riff just everything else about it uh i was on an episode of 278 to lighthouse road back in may and and jay on that show and i were talking about beach songs and we ended up weirdly we got on this weird tangent where we started talking about canadian music and how some practical things the government has done there have given a lot of people a chance to make a career in the arts right now I bring that up to remind folks that while the Guess Who may not feel as big as the Who to us in the United States, they were a big freaking deal in Canada. And Randy Bachman was their guitar player. So that iconic riff that starts American Woman, that's Randy freaking Bachman. That, that guy's an icon. Yeah. Now, these dudes hit the big time in 1970, and Bachman at that point, despite the success is kind of starting to drift away from the band, both musically and ideologically. He puts out an instrumental solo album. Like, right, like, America Woman is at the top of the charts, and he's like, you know what I'm going to do? No lyrics. <laughs> no lyrics. Uh, he, he gets sick, and he takes some time off, and eventually he and Burton Cummings, who is, like, the, the voice and the guy behind the who, uh, the kid who was, like, running that band from behind the keyboards, they're not getting along. And so this is probably partly because... Bachman became a Mormon and being a Mormon and having high levels of rock and roll success in the early seventies are not like super compatible lifestyles. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) So I said, I set this up to say that in 1970 at the height of the guess who's success, Randy Bachman leaves voluntarily. And he's since said about that time that by leaving guess who he was labeled as quote, a lunatic and a loser. And that quote, nobody wanted to work with me. Now, there was an wow. exception. There was an exception. Chad Allen had sang lead vocals in the Guess Who four years earlier, and he had he had left way before Randy. And so they get back together. They're both, you know, they have this common past, and they end up starting something up and recruiting basically just like Bachman's brothers. And they create this band called Brave Belt. Have you ever listened to Brave Belt before? No, and it's a really funny name. (laughs) (laughs) Brave Belt put out two records, Mark. I had never heard of Brave Belt. So before, between Guess Who and and frickin' uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Brave Belt has two albums. And it's like a little more country, a little less rock and roll. It's like super jangly. Um and and nobody nobody liked it. Like let's just so for just so you can hear it. This is called another way out. So this is what Randy Bachman is doing. Him, his brothers, Chad Allen, who had sang the Guess Who early on, put out two records as, as Brave Belt, and it just like <laughs> doesn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, they have a record deal, and people are just not super interested in it. Um, and so what ends up happening is 
they end up adding this guy named C.F. Turner to the band. And the reason they add him is that Randy is talking to another Canadian musician named Neil Young. You might have heard of him. And Neil Young's like, oh, if you need um, if you need somebody else in your band, like I think they needed somebody to tour with him or something. He was like, you need this guy, C.F. Turner. He's like, oh, what's he been doing? Oh, he's the vocalist uh, in this cover band in Winnipeg. <laughs> and so they they go and get him and he's like the guy that they need. He like changes the band and changes the sound and starts writing the songs and and Chad Allen ends up quitting. I think it's amicable. Brave Belt's second record doesn't sell either. Uh they get dropped and Bachman is like the last guy that any major label wants to touch, right? He left the guess who, he starts this other thing nobody likes. He gets 22 rejection letters. He sends I mean, there weren't that many labels, right, in the 70s. You're right. 22. He yeah, gets 22 rejection letters. He actually says, at one point I read this quote where he said they had considered uh, on a Greatest Hits album for BTO, like just printing all the rejection letters because he kept them, like printing them in the liner notes. Yeah. Which would have been great. pretty funny. Uh, that would have been... That would have been an amazing piece of rock and roll memorabilia I know. to have. I, I mean, I'm sure it'll end up in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame or something. I'm not sure they'll put it in Cleveland, but it'll probably end up in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Um, I bet, uh, yeah. But eventually, through like this weird fluke, he gets interest from Mercury Records. Uh, Mercury Records, it's like this long story, but basically like this guy's going through a stack of demos, and he hears it, and he's like, oh, I think I met Randy Bachman once, and they're like, they hit it off. And so the guy who signs them is like, okay, this is cool, but we have got to get some distance from brave belt. Like you cannot call it brave belt anymore. Um, you rock harder now and we probably need to like capitalize on the things that have been successful about you before. So let's use your names. And there was this story that they had, uh, been playing around at times before with using their names and they, they were like reading overdrive magazine in a truck stop or something like, you know, and they like put everything together on a napkin, one of those sorts of stories. But, this is how the real core band that we know as Bachman Turner Overdrive happens. Now, remember how I mentioned they're Canadian? Um, this is a key point because we get to talk about how they broke in the U.S., which I find really, really interesting. So I know from our past radio days, I had a, a buddy that worked in an Upper Peninsula area, Michigan. And he explained to me about, and he actually worked in Port Huron, Canada at some point. Um and there is a, or maybe Port Huron's in Michigan, and he worked on the other side of the border. Anyway, he worked in Canada, and he said that there were all these quotas of, you know, the Canadian artists you had to play right. and that sort of thing, right? Yes. We've talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened is Michigan and, like, Detroit area and Buffalo area radio stations got a hold of this because of, like, the overlap. Wow. And they started playing... In those two markets. And this is actually pretty common for Canadian bands that break in the United States. It has to kind of like actually cross the border. But the best part of this story, and I bring it up only because we're old radio guys. If you've never listened to the show before, I apologize in advance. But this is a radio story that's so good. And if you've ever been in radio and you've ever been in radio promotions and marketing like you and I have, it I mean, it hits a, a spot in our hearts that is just hard to describe to anybody who hasn't dealt with something like this. So this is how they break in the Midwest. (laughs) CF Turner tells the story like this. I'm going to actually quote him. 
So we get a call from radio station KSHE in, in St. Louis, Missouri, and they're putting on a they're putting on a benefit concert. And they wanted they're looking for a band to headline that nobody heard of because the headline acts they booked all got bigger offers and weren't coming. So they're like, we don't even know who to book here because we can't really pay very well. And so we everybody ends up like saying yes and then saying no when they get another offer. And so we already had the BTO album out. So they had something to play. So they literally start pretending like BTO are are this huge band. Oh my god! And they oh this is a hundred percent true. They play the record every hour, and <laughs> they play every cut off the album, and it's a it's a hundred and fifty thousand watt station. So oh, wow. it hits across six states. The record company literally calls. The CF Turner says they called us and said, "What the hell is happening? We shipped ten thousand records to St. Louis in one week." They get there. They don't really know the specifics of what they're playing. It's a show at a drive-in theater. 15,000 people. The region had been so saturated with the album, they had no idea this band was Canadian. They just, and they knew all the songs because they had one album out and the radio station played every track off of it. That is that is so freaking awesome. And it's so typical of what you would do in radio promotion. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we're going to break this record. Work in over time. Let's you know, pretend like this is the biggest band in the world, even though they're a band from Canada that nobody's heard of. Yeah. So fantastic. They're, they're good, fashion, old-fashioned road dogs, man. I mean, they had some real 2020 spunk in, uh, in the early 70s. They played 300 shows in their first year of existence. it's insane man man, that's a lot that's a lot of energy wow so let's get to the song in question and this will have us fast forwarding a few years to 1974 let's talk about you ain't seen nothing yet one of the band's biggest hits actually not only was it not meant to be on an on their album it was not really meant to be a real song Randy Bachman starts messing around with this song structure while they're recording that third album. It's called the album ends up being called Not Fragile in 1974. And what he was really doing was like challenging himself on rhythm guitar. So do you know do you know the name Dave Mason? Yeah. Yeah. So sure. other guy in traffic, not yeah. Steve Winwood. Yeah. And he's playing uh this Dave Mason song, or he'd heard this Dave Mason song called uh Only You Know and I Know. And there's a very specific sort of acoustic guitar. Just check this out. This is that song. If you ignore the vocals and you just listen to what the acoustic guitar is doing there, that rhythm, you can definitely hear the similarities to what happens in You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, right? So yeah. this okay. this is what Randy Bachman is vibing on at the time, right? He's really he's into this song and he's like, oh, I'm gonna figure out how to kind of incorporate that sort of acoustic guitar playing. So he's in the middle of doing that and he starts to do it in the studio a lot. So let's pause here for a second and discuss something relevant to the story that's going to resonate more if you have been in a band at any point in your life. And I know you have, Murdoch. So think back to your days in a band and think about like that moment when you're getting ready in practice where you get all tuned up and you guys all, all start like falling into the playing the same song. 
like maybe it's a cover, maybe it's just a riff, maybe it's like one of your own tunes, but often you do this regularly with the same song. Can you remember any songs you used to warm up with in the bands you were in? Yeah, uh, Sick of Myself by Matthew Sweet. Nice. Um, Glad Girls by Guided by Voices. Great, great one. Um, Barracuda by Heart. Oh, nice. Uh, um no. yeah those are those are just kind of yeah those are the covers or whatever but no we would we had like an we had one song it was like the second song in the set and we would we would warm up to that song okay perfect when you're regularly tuning up and getting the sound right like in a recording studio there is a technical term for this throwaway music that you're playing right yeah what is what's the throwaway it's, music it's, called? it's called a work track oh Okay. You're like making sure that everything's going to record right and the mics are turned on and that the levels are right and all that sort of stuff, right? So sometimes tape is running. And that's what this tune became for BTO, is they were going into the studio and getting the session started each day for this Not Fragile record. They'd like warm up and vamp on this song fragment. And Randy was slowly like putting almost like silly words to it eventually. Now, remember when I said at the beginning of BTO, uh, at the beginning of the BTO portion of this deal that Randy, when he left Guess Who, brought family into the band? Yeah, the brothers or whatever. Yeah, so there was one brother, and then later there was another brother. And then at the beginning of, of uh, Brave Belt, his brother Gary was the original manager. <laughs> Eventually, he encourages them to move on to another manager, and he moves on to do another stuff. And I believe he ended up selling real estate later in life. Um, but here's a little factoid about Gary Bachman. Gary Bachman had a stutter. Oh, and this is about him, right? So, well... When they would play this as a work track, Randy Bachman had thrown some lyrics together, and as an inside joke, when they were testing mics, he would do this like stuttering impression of Gary. Now, here's Randy speaking. He says, Then one day I called Randy up. We played him this with me impersonating him, and we told him just to, just to mess with him. We were like, dude, this is going to be on the album. It was only to get him riled up. But it wasn't really even a finished song. He just made up and riffed on those silly lyrics, and he would stumble around on the fa-fa-fa-fa-fa-fa and the ba-ba-ba-ba-baby, right? Now, Mercury Records strikes again. We talked about how they ended up getting BTO and turning Brave Belt into BTO. They made some good decisions. They get this album, Not Fragile. It's the third record, and they listen to it, and they say, okay, it, it's, it's fine, but there are no hits. What are we going to play on the radio? So the band doesn't really know what to do. Uh, that's not the feedback you want to hear from your label, right? Especially when you've had kind of a tenuous relationship with your labels. And, and you know, you've, you're on the only one that will take you. So probably at the depressing band meeting where this development is revealed, some of the band members ask Randy Bachman. They're like, well, what about the work track we've been doing? And they just need to save the album at this point. So Bachman reluctantly mentions that he had this ninth song, but he's like, dude, it's not really for a record. It's a joke. I'm laughing at the end. I sang on the first take. It's sharp. It's flat. I'm stuttering because I'm doing this thing to mess with my brother. And the guy from Mercury is like, no, 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 play it. So <laughs> he That's listens awesome. to it. And and like before it's over, he looks at him. He goes, that, that, that's, it. "That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. It's got a brightness. It kind of floats a foot higher than everything else on the record. This is it." <sighs> so reluctantly, Bachman's like, "Okay, I guess. I mean, I guess we can put it on the album." So he, they resequence the album to fit it in. But his condition, he says, "I will let you. I will we'll use this song, 
but you have to let me re-record the vocal. Because this is all an inside joke that's gone awry, and he can't actually have the stutter on the record. So he goes in, and he sings it straight. And again, here's a quote from Randy Bachman. I tried to sing it normal, and I sounded like Frank Sinatra. So, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> I was oh, going to ask you to do that. Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Here's something. <laughs> here's something you won't forget. <laughs> oh, babe. It makes it into a stupid song, uh, right? Yeah, Mercury's like, nope, you got to leave the stutter. That is his first take. I'm pretty sure. <gasps> No way. I'm pretty sure it's, I'm not sure if it's the first take, but I think it's the, it might be the original take. I'm a little unclear on that, but three things to bring the story to a happy ending. Number one, this prank Randy played on his brother makes him very wealthy. Just like jet airliner that we talked about a few weeks back on the show, major source of mailbox money. Um, It also gets used for all sorts of stuff. Like just think about pop culturally, how often you hear that song. They, I mean, they leveraged the hell out of it. So it gets used for sports coverage. It gets mentioned as part of this gag on what becomes a legendary skit on this SNL-type Canadian sketch show. And they, they, use, they use it to sell crap? They use it to sell all kinds of stuff. And, of course, the song gets covered, including by a British rap group called Bus Stop. Now, <laughs> this is... Play it. This is oh my god! So you gotta you gotta hear this part of the story. So Randy Bachman clearly doesn't give a crap. All he is he is at a certain point in his career he is just about the money. So this is I'm pretty sure by the references they make late '90s. Bus stop is hard to find. They're not on Spotify. I had to dig for this. But when they put out the video for this, it is in a they don't change the name. They call it "You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet." Um, they get Randy Bachman to re-record and sing the hook and be in the video. And let me just tell you, it's amazing. So here's a little bit of You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet by Bus Stop. You know the way it goes. You ain't seen nothing yet, no doubt. Randy and DAC turn it out. Randy and DAC turning it out. Uh, I highly encourage going to watch the video. And then when they hit the hook, Randy is there in sunglasses, got to be 55 years old, uh, singing his heart out. It's it's pretty amazing. And I, I, I admire the guy for just being like, you know what? Uh, if you want to pay for it, go for it. Because that song was never supposed to be a freaking song. <laughs> no, and, and th- think about, I guess at some point, there has to be some sort of acceptance that you realize that, yeah, you're like, not gonna have to work. You're not yeah. really gonna have to work much that you can license and do all sorts of stuff with this one song. A, a couple of quick things to put icing on top of the cake. Uh, after all this happens, Gary, the stuttering brother, uh, goes to speech therapy and ends up kicking the stutter. No more stuttering yeah. for Gary Bachman. So yeah, well, I bet he had some cash to go to stutter. <laughs> he got a, he got stutter. a good therapist. Um, yeah. And in 2011, this is totally real. The Stuttering Foundation, which I learned during the research that there are quite a few stuttering-focused nonprofits, uh, they issued a press release headlined "Stuttering to the Top of the Charts," which named "You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet" as the top stuttering song of all time. 
on account of the fact that the song was inspired by an actual person who stutters and the fact that the person later found fluency through speech therapy. So there's your happy ending. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad, by the way, I'm, I'm glad we didn't take a left turn and get to Mel Tillis and start, and start talking about country music stuttering because then we're just like borderline like vaudeville. I, I prefer the podcast to stay with the rock and roll Oh, man. If you want to get involved, we are the story guys at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Leave a review, uh, iTunes or wherever you download the show. Let people know you enjoy it. We really appreciate hearing those and seeing those. And they do, of course, help uh, other people to experience the show. And until next time, Murdoch, I do this tastefully. What, What do we want people to keep doing? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.